You can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're taking our time as we're going through this section of Scripture because there's so much in this that we don't want to miss anything. And we definitely don't want to misunderstand anything. Um, Inevitably, when I've dealt with this text over the years in ministry, um, after studying it or having a Bible study on it or preaching a sermon on it, inevitably people come back to the question of the matter of the human will and its freedom or its bondage. And uh, I've said before, if we're so desperately lost as we see here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through 3.20, he constantly is beating that drum. You're lost in your sin. You're lost in your sin. You're not righteous. You don't have a righteousness of your own. If that's the truth, which we believe the Word of God says, and it is, then unaided by the Spirit of God, no one can come to God. No one can choose God. No one can even believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. No one. Unless, unless God first makes that person alive in Christ and draws him or her to himself. That is something that maybe you're hearing for the first time. Maybe you're not. If you've been here for any amount of time, you, that's not the first time you've heard that. But... It troubles many Christians, that truth that we just stated. Uh, It doesn't seem consistent with what they or even we know about our own ability to choose what they wanted to choose or reject what they wanted to reject. Um, What's more important is when you look into Scripture, it seems inconsistent with the many free offers of the gospel that we find throughout the New Testament. What does the Bible mean when it says in Ephesians 2.1 that we are dead in our transgressions and our sins? What does that mean? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Does that mean that somehow we're really unable to respond to God in any way, even when the gospel is proclaimed to us? Or do we still have a little bit of ability left? Can, if, if we respond, if we can respond, what did Jesus mean when he said in John 6, no one can come to me, what? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or in Romans, or John 6, 65, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. On the other hand, the debate goes, if we can't respond, then what is the meaning of those passages in Scripture where we find the gospel is offered to fallen men and women? What do we do with them? For example, Isaiah 55.1, where the Lord himself, through the prophet Isaiah, says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. What about those kind of invitations? Furthermore, how can a person be held responsible for failing to believe in Jesus if he or she is unable to do so? See the tension? 
Well, these questions come to us in vivid color in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20. Last week, we looked at basically verses 10 and 11 of Romans 3. And to sum up Paul's condition, his assessment of man's condition, which is God's assessment because he's using God's word to do so. He's already used creation. He's already used logic. And basically, he's condemned everybody on the planet. Everybody's sinful. So in verse 10, he's kind of summing this up. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. He put that in there just so you couldn't say, well, wait, 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 I'm pretty good. No, no, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. See, the way you interpret this verse has a lot to do with how you regard man's rock-bottom inability, or depending on your theological view, ability, where spiritual things are concerned. This is not a debate, beloved, that was just born yesterday. This has been around for years, since the inception of the church. The best way to approach the subject is through the debates that have already taken place, I believe. The first important debate in history, and this is just kind of introduction for us here today, was between Pelagius and St. Augustine toward the end of the 4th and the beginning of the 5th century. That just gives you a little idea of how far back this goes. Pelagius was arguing for free will. He did not want to deny the universality of sin, at least at the beginning of his argument. He knew that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He understood that. Romans 3.23, we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks. And in that sense, he wanted to remain orthodox to the Scriptures. But Pelagius could not see how we can be held responsible for something if we don't have the free will in the matter. Logical conclusion, right? Kind of makes sense. If there is an obligation to do something, there must be an ability to do it. That's what his argument was. And Pelagius believed that the, the will, rather than being bound by sin, which is what the Scripture says, and we'll look at that, he believed it's actually neutral. So that any moment or in any given situation, it is free to choose either good or evil. That's what he believed. And it worked, it's fleshed its way out in, in a lot of different ways in theology back then. For one, it led to a view of sin as only those deliberate and unrelated acts in which the will actually chooses to do evil. So if you do something that's sinful, but you didn't really choose to do it, then it's not sin. And any necessary connection between sins and the hereditary principle of sin within the race was simply thrown out. It was forgotten. He argued the sin of Adam affected no one but himself. That's what he said. Number two, he argued that both since Adam have been born, those born since Adam have been born into the same condition Adam was in before his fall. That is, into a position of neutrality so far as sin is concerned. 
And then he also argued, thirdly, that human beings are able to live free from sin if they want to. I have some issues. The Scripture has some issues with those statements. But unfortunately, that's probably the view of most people today, including many Christians in our society. But it's faulty because it limits the nature and the scope of sin and because it leads to a denial of the necessity of the unmerited grace of God in salvation. And we're going to explain that to you this morning. Even when the gospel is preached to a fallen sinner, according to his view, what ultimately determines whether he or she will be saved is not the supernatural working of God through the Holy Spirit, but rather the person's will, which either receives or rejects the Savior. And this gives human beings glory that only ought to go to God. In his early life, Augustine basically believed the same thing. But when he became a Christian, and as he began to study the Scriptures diligently, he came to see that the views of his fellow theologian didn't do justice to either biblical doctrine, the doctrine of sin, or the grace of God in salvation. Augustine saw that the Bible always speaks of sin as more than mere isolated and individual acts. It speaks of an inherited depravity as a result of which it is simply not possible for the individual to stop sinning. He actually coined a phrase. Non posse non, it means not able not to sin. You're not able not to sin. Which means, unaided by God, a person is just not able to stop sinning and choose the Lord. Augustine said that, uh, that man, having used his free will, will, will badly in the fall, lost both himself and his will. Having used his free will badly in the fall, lost both having himself and his will. Uh, He said that the will is free of righteousness, but it's enslaved to sin. It is free to turn from God, but not to come to God. As far as grace is concerned, Augustine saw that apart from grace, no one can be saved. That's what the Bible teaches us. And moreover, he taught that the matter of grace from beginning to end, it's not just Uh, partial grace, which kind of you add to the sinner's efforts and then somehow they both work together and you end up with salvation. Because if you believe that, then you'd have to say that salvation is not entirely of God and God's honor would be diminished. Human beings would be able to boast in heaven one day. How'd you get here? I chose God. I did this. I did that. It's very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By the way, we we have that, I think it's that scripture, on our playground. 
on engraved in the, the one panel. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And eventually, Augustine's view prevailed early on in church history. The church supported his view. They saw the scriptures lined up with his view. But unfortunately, Christianity gradually, over the years, have drifted back to the direction of Pelagianism, and, and during the Middle Ages is when that all started. So you have at the time of the Reformation, the battle erupted once again between Martin Luther and a Dutch humanist, Erasmus of Rotterdam. And then another debate arose between Jacob Arminius and John Calvin. That's where we get Calvinism and Arminianism from. And so when you stop and you you think of this, this is not something that just popped onto the scene yesterday. Um, and I think that it's it's important to understand that they, they've had wars over the years. One one wrote the, the bondage of the will, Luther did. And you know, it's, it's important to, to, to see that, that aspect. And, and the other guy, you know, wrote a, the bondage of sin. <laughs> and they just had this back and forth. And we have that going on today. But it, it's irrelevant, really, what all these debates are about and everything. What does the Scripture say? And that's what we're here for this morning. And so we've been looking at Romans chapter 3. And we've been looking beginning in verse 9. And I just want to read our text for us. I'll read down to verse 20. What then, are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be... A, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Last week, we looked just quickly at the question. He starts right off there in, in verse 9 in way of review. And Paul's basically saying, okay, what's, he's asking these rhetorical questions. He's saying, okay, you've heard my argument. Everybody's condemned. And now his hearers are saying, okay, well, if that's true, Paul, what do we do about it? What's, help us understand this situation. What's the conclusion to all this? And that's what he says in verse 9. What then? And then we talked about, are we any better off? And we talked about, and you can get this last week, some translations say, are we Jews? Putting Paul in with the Jews. I believe it should read, are we any better off? Referring to those believers in Rome. I think he was talking about the Christians. Just because he knew our human nature. 
He knew that sometimes Christians can get a little haughty, can get a little self-righteous, can get feeling pretty good about themselves. And he had already dismissed the Gentiles. He had already dismissed the Jews. Why would he do it again here? It doesn't make sense. So I think he's speaking of Christians. Are we Christians any better off in our nature? Are we a better person than them? Is that why we're Christians? That's the question he's asking. And his answer is no, no way. Absolutely not. He wants us to understand that. That just because you've been saved by the grace of God and Christ's work for you on Calvary doesn't make you any better than the guy across the street or the neighbor down the street or whoever it may be who hasn't put their faith and trust in Christ yet. And the only reason I know that is because God said, hey, I didn't pick you because of your whatever, fill in the blank, your good looks, your talents, your gifts, your intellect. He didn't pick us because of that. No, it says he picked the foolish things. He chose the foolish things of this earth so that he may get all the glory. And then he says, we have already charged. We have already charged. It's a legal term. It's indicting a person for a giving, given offense. He says we're already charged that everybody, Jews, Greeks, everybody, that, that's everybody, is under sin. There's not one person that's not under sin. Well, what about the Pope? The Pope's under sin. Everybody is under sin sin. It means to be under the power of, the control of, the dominion of, the authority of. That's the idea. Well, basically, we got down to where it says, as it is written, and referred to that, and we said, you know what, it's interesting because it's written in the perfect tense, and it's referring to the Old Testament, and right here, he begins to quote the Psalms. He begins to quote Psalm 14. He begins to quote Psalm 53. He begins to quote from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 20. And so Paul's saying, look, I've given you a lot of information that you're condemned. You have no righteousness or whatever. But now I'm going to give you the ultimate source. It's God himself. I'm quoting from God's word as it is written. And the perfect tense means that it was written some time ago, but it continues. The results continue. Nothing changes with that statement. So what we're going to read applies today just as it did back then. And he begins here in, cha- in verse 9 of chapter 3. The apostle summarizes the condition of every human heart as being apart from the grace of God in Christ. That's not a pretty picture. We don't like to see that. According to Paul, Jews are not better than Gentiles. And Gentiles are not better than Jews. And Christians are not better than anybody. Everybody, everybody is under sin. And so he says there in verse 10, none is what? Righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. No one seeks for God. We talked last week, and we just mentioned this at the end of the service. This is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity is hard for the human race to accept. 
because we like to think that there's something good about us. Because our comparison is not to God, it's to two other human beings. Now, most people are willing to admit that they're not perfect. I mean, I don't think anybody here this morning would say, oh, I'm perfect, Pastor. No, nobody would say that. That would be arrogant. That would be prideful. But you know what? We do, within ourselves, feel that somehow we have a natural ability to please God. We're willing to admit that we're not perfect, but not that we're not righteous. We're willing to admit that there are things not known to us, but not that we are devoid of all spiritual understanding. We're willing to admit that, you know, yeah, basically we have sin, but we're not totally depraved. See, instead of admitting that we are running away from God in our fallen state, we pretend that somehow we're seeking Him. And we have to come to terms with this bad tendency to run away from what the truth of the Word of God says to us. Because without an accurate knowledge, listen, of our own sin... We will never come to know the meaning of God's grace. If we don't have an accurate knowledge of our own sin, our own fallenness, our own sinfulness, we will never come to understand the meaning of God's grace. Without an awareness of our pride, we'll never be able to appreciate God's greatness. Nor will we come to God for healing or anything else we might desperately need. I mean, in a way, it's kind of like being sick. Physically, you know, some of you have been sick, had some issues with my neck and didn't go away. So what I did, I went to a doctor. Doctor sent me to a therapist. He puts me in this device and stretches my, am I taller at all? I was wondering, does this make me taller? He's stretching me out every week. I don't know if it's going to work or not. It doesn't feel like it, but we'll go for a couple weeks and see what happens. See, as long as we are convinced, or at least sort of convinced that we're well, right, in our physical state, are you going to go to the doctor? Probably not. Usually not. Even chiropractors have that complaint with people. The only time they come with this is when something's hurting. They need to come, right? They need to come and get cracked and do all this as maintenance because then you won't have all these issues. That's their mentality. But we don't go to a doctor if we're not feeling pain or we're we're not sick. That would be kind of silly. But if we know that we are spiritually sick, we'll turn to that great physician, Jesus Christ, who him alone is able to heal us. But it's, it's you know what? That illustration is kind of bad because it's really worse than that. <laughs> the scripture says it's really worse than that. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Because I I just use the illustration of being sick. See, the the Bible doesn't use those terms. The Bible doesn't call us sick. (laughs) You know what it calls us? Dead. 
We're not sick. We're dead. I mean, there's a big difference there. Would you, would you say so? I mean, you know, you go to see the hospital, somebody to see somebody in the hospital and they're sick. You know, you go in and if you go in there and the bed's empty and the doctor goes, oh, no, they're dead. Big difference, right? I mean, you're not going to, your, your prayers are going to change a little bit. You're going to be thinking, well, how can I minister to the family and everything? You know, that guy's dead. I mean, they're, they're gone. They're, they're where they're going to be. You wouldn't say, well, wait a minute, no, call the doctor back in, you know, give him something else. No, he's dead. The person's dead. There's nothing nobody can do. That's how Scripture describes us. As long as someone is merely sick, listen to this, the situation is not hopeless. There's always hope. You can be really, 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 really sick. But you know what? With today's medicine, today's doctors, and all the technology and research, there, there might be a chance. Yeah, the odds may be against you, but still, there, there could be a chance. And we've all heard stories of people that have, have broken through the odds and come out and, boy, they live a, a wonderful life today. And yet, they were on death's door one day. And even the doctors thought, boy, nothing, we can't do anything. But somehow, they came through it. So there's always hope, as long as you're you're just sick. <laughs> Maybe they'll get better. Maybe they'll survive. But see, according to these verses and others, apart from the grace of God, a person is not just spiritually sick. They're dead. They're dead. And that's the uniqueness of the Bible's teaching. See, there's basically three views of the human nature. There's three views throughout history. One is that man is well. That man is well. That's the optimistic view. You know, they, they may disagree on how well man is exactly, but, you know, for the most part, man's a pretty good person. Perhaps he may not be as well as he could be, but he's still well. The second view, that man is sick. This is kind of the pessimistic view. They'll agree that man is sick. There's something wrong with him. All you have to do is look around, read the news, watch the news. Man may be acutely sick, critically sick, mortally sick. But you know what? Somehow there's still a little bit of good there. Somehow we're going to turn this thing around. See, the first view holds that eventually man will get his act together and, and you know, we feel that there's enough good in man. Man is well enough that eventually all these things, are, they're going to work out their own problems. They're going to evolve to a certain state. And The second view is that, that man is sick and yet, you know what? Still, he's, he's going to be able to, with evolution going on and all this stuff, you know, that, that we know is so true today, uh, Disease will be conquered, wars will end, all this strife will end because man will just, you know, even though he's slightly flawed, he's sick, he'll work it out. Well, neither one of those views is biblical. The third view is the only view that is biblical that man is dead, that he's dead. That's the view the Bible presents. 
that humans are not well, they're not even sick, they're dead. And we are so dead that we are unable to do anything to please or understand or seek God. We are as God declared us we would be when he warned Adam and Eve in the garden. When he warned them against eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he said to them, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. Genesis 2.17. Our first parents did eat of it, and they died. And that is true of us. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses in sin. Of ourselves, we are unable to respond to God, just like any corpse in a funeral home would be unable to respond to you if you told it to do something. Now, as we look at this, we're going to look at four areas. We're basically just going to get through the, the first one today, the sinful heart. Because when you think of the corruption of man and the human depravity, the total depravity of man, it all starts right there in the heart. And that's what he says in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That speaks to our moral nature. It speaks to our moral nature. The Bible indicates that something has gone afoul with man's heart. That it's corrupt. That the inner being of man is vile, it's wretched, it's filthy. And the Bible says that out of your heart comes what? What you do, what you say, what you think. He says there's none righteous, no, not even one. That's right out of Psalm 14, beloved. The first three verses there. Nobody is righteous. That's what Romans is all about. Who's got righteousness and who doesn't? It's real easy. Nobody's got righteousness except God. And the only reason we have any righteousness is because he gave it to us. That word righteous. There's none righteous. It's not, you know, you don't have to learn Greek to understand what it means. You really don't. It's pretty simple. It's not good, okay? It means bad. Um, He's saying nobody is good. I I think of that word, and I remember talking to a skater guy one day down at Red Morton Park. And uh, I don't know how we started talking about the Lord and whatever. And and every time I say something, you go, whoa, whoa, man, dude, that's righteous. (laughs) And I thought, well, you don't even have a clue what that word means, man, do you? You know, he really didn't. He just thought it sounded good. Dude, that's righteous. It did sound kind of cool how he said it, you know. But I kind of had to explain to him, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not righteous, you know. Um, but it means good. It means right. It means just. And what Paul is saying here is nobody is good. Nobody. Not anybody. Not you. Not me. Nobody is good. So that begs the question, well, how good is good? (laughs) 
right? I mean, I mean, the good is a relative thing. What are we talking about here? He says, none is righteous. That same word MacArthur points out is used of God in the Bible. It's used of Christ in the New Testament, that word righteous. And what it means is not just good. It means perfect. Perfecto. Perfect. If you're as good as God, as you're as good as Christ, you're perfect. That's the only standard that God is using. Anything else doesn't meet his standard. So really, it's, it's kind of simple. Either you're perfect or you're what? Bad. There's no, you know, line of demarcation there. There's no gray area. Well, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself bad, but I know I'm not perfect. Maybe I'm in between. No, you're not. That's his point. You're either perfect or you're bad. You're either perfect or you're sinful. There's no getting around that. There aren't multiple levels here. There's only two kinds of people, perfect and bad. Either you're absolutely righteous, you're perfect like God, or you're totally sinful. Because if you've even just got one sin, the Bible says that what? You've got them all. Matthew 5.48, the Lord said, you therefore must be perfect. That's from Christ himself. You must be perfect. Well, how perfect do I have to be? You have to be as perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Just to clarify, Jesus didn't want him to get mixed up. That's the standard. And you stop and you say, well, wait a minute. Wait, if, if God is, has this standard, how in the world are we ever going to meet it? If we have no ability, if, we have, if we're steeped in our sin and, and God is way out there in, in, in perfectville, how are we going to get there? You're not. That's the whole point. You're not. You're unable to. You're dead. You have no ability within yourself. But the neat thing about God, beloved, our God is so so loving this way. As soon as you acknowledge that, as soon as you're willing to say, you know what, you're right, God, there is no way. What am I going to do? Then he steps in. He says, hey, I got a plan. I've had a plan since the foundation of the world. I'm going to give you the righteousness of my son. Whoa. That's why you have to come through Christ to be part of the righteousness of God. You're either perfect or you're bad. And the only way you're going to get perfect is through Christ. Because you can't earn it. You can't make yourself perfect. If you're already not perfect, right? I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. And people have an issue with that. They have a problem with that. Because when you look at the society, there's, there's relative goodness out there, right? I mean, you know, we may, may not be as bad as the next guy, or they may not be as bad as us. 
there's a relative goodness in our society. You see that all the time. You see that in the news. How the stories change sometimes. And then when the facts come out, well, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. We didn't do that. You know, that's just the way it is. We want to rationalize our badness. We want to rationalize our sinfulness. And we want to rationalize God's standard. So as a church, we come up with little things. Not our church, but the church in general, you know. We're going to have a seeker service. Whoa, Okay. What's a seeker? Well, seeker service is when those who are coming to seek God. Wait a minute. There's nobody that's seeking God. Well, no, but when the people come, they're going to be seeking. No, they're not. (laughs) Biblically, that's not correct. Because the Bible says no one seeks after God. No one. We've all turned aside. We've all come up short of the glory of God. That's the standard. His perfect righteousness. You may be a little further along than your neighbor, beloved. And I've used this illustration before, but you know what? If I gave you (laughs) three months and said, you know what? In three months, December, we're going to all go down and we're going to stand on the end of Pier 39 and we're going to jump to Alcatraz. And between now and then, you have all the resources available to you. You can go get the best trainer, long jump trainer. You can do whatever you want to make sure that you can jump to Alcatraz on that day. I don't care what kind of training you go through. I don't care who is training you, the best Olympian, whatever, and you're, you're dedicating, you know, 12 hours a day to training, and we get there down on the end of Pier 39, ready, set, go, and we all jump. What's going to happen? You're going in the tank. You're going in the water. Nobody's going to make it to Alcatraz. It's impossible. I don't care what kind of training you've gone through. You may be able to jump 10 feet further than me, but you're not making it to Alcatraz. I'll guarantee you that. That's what it's like when we stop and we think of God's standard. The glory of God is righteousness. And there's nobody righteous like that. If you were, you'd be God. And that's what Paul says there. There's nobody there. There's no one righteous. This was from God's point of view. This is God's word he's saying. We have a problem in our own humanness because we see it from our point of view. We think somehow that we can do good. That somehow in our sinfulness that we can do enough good that somehow God will shed a little grace on us and then maybe together we'll get saved. No, it doesn't work that way. James Montgomery Boyce use an illustration and and I just want to read it to you because it was such a good illustration in his commentary. He said, suppose that during the Vietnam War, a platoon of American soldiers was captured and they were interned by the North Vietnamese. Imagine further that at some point in that captivity, a Red Cross package arrived at the camp and it contained, among other things, the game of Monopoly. A donor thought simply that the soldiers would like to do something while they were... uh, wasting away their long hours in imprisonment, and they thought maybe a game Monopoly would help them uh, take care of the time factor. Well, the soldiers were glad to get the Monopoly game, but not for the reason that the sender thought. They were glad to have it because it gave them money. 
with which to do camp business. Before this, if someone wanted to get something from another soldier, a cigarette, for example, he had to beg, borrow, or steal it. Now they could divvy up the Monopoly money, and so some soldiers were distributed the gold, yellow, blue, green, white money, and they went into business. It seems always the case among a group of Americans that one person is naturally gifted as a capitalist, and this platoon was no exception. Because of that, one man was a genius at buying low and selling high, and in time he accumulated almost all the money in the camp. Suppose further that eventually there was a prisoner of exchange prisoner of war exchange, and a group of Vietnamese were exchanged for this group of platoon of Americans. A helicopter comes, picks them up, flies them to Da Nang, and then from there, it's only a couple matter of hours before they're back in the States on the California coast. Almost immediately, the successful capitalist soldier enters the first national bank of San Francisco and steps up to the counter. And the teller is pleased to open an account for him, says, we're glad to help our veterans, she says. How much do you want to deposit? He says about a half a million. And he pushes the $500,382, which is what's in a game Monopoly, over the counter to the teller. At which, of course, she pushes the little button, <laughs> not for, she reaches down, not for the deposit slip, but for the alarm button to call someone and take this poor deranged man away. The illustration is this. That is the difference between human righteousness on the one hand, listen to this, and the righteousness God requires of us on the other. Human righteousness is like monopoly money. It has its uses in the game, the game we call life, but it is not real currency, and it does not work in God's domain. See, God requires, beloved, divine righteousness. Just as in America, only U.S. dollars we can tender for, for uh, legal money. And that's so true. And yet, so many times, we want to kind of make our own rules. We're going to find, as we get a little further along in closing here, into Romans, in Romans 10, chapter 3, It's interesting because Paul writes of Israel's failure in their walk with God. He says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, what did they do? They sought to establish their own. And they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, they wanted to come up with their own currency. But it wasn't a currency that God honored. And that's what we have to believe in our own hearts. When we come to God's word and we come to the Christian life, we can't just make up rules willy-nilly. Well, I believe this. I don't believe God would you know, choose somebody and then not, able, not allow them to come to him or whatever. It doesn't matter what your logic says. It's what the word of God says. And the Bible very clearly here on our first point, the corruption, that morally, our nature, there's none righteous, not even one. Very clear. We need to be reminded of that, beloved. And that leads, basically, to the second and third. We'll look at that next week. That we don't understand and we don't even seek God. But I don't know what you've been taught in the past. I don't know what theology is going around in your mind. But I just want to encourage you, go to the Scriptures. 
Don't go read a book on Calvinism. Don't go read a book on Arminianism. Go to the scriptures. It's very clear. It's spelled out for us very clearly. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we're able to take our time and just kind of pick away at this passage each week. But Lord, we do know that the message seems to be reverberating the same each week, that we're sinners, that we're lost, that we're dead in our sin, that there's no hope for us outside of Christ. Father, I pray for each person here this morning. Lord, I pray first for those who are professing Christ. I pray that when they came to Christ, they understood their depravity. They understood their hopelessness, their helplessness, that there was nowhere else they could turn to but to Christ. Because that's genuine conversion. When you're at the end of your rope and you have nowhere else to reach to, and God says, here, take my hand, and you do, that's what it's all about. It's not trying to shimmy yourself up the rope with, with one hand while grabbing a hold of his and still trying. No, it's, it's utterly giving up because you're dead. You realize you can't do anything. If as a believer, we're holding on to some goodness in ourselves, thinking that somehow in our walk with you initially, we, we surmised and we, through our intellect, came to the point of deciding and choosing you. Lord, that that's just wrong, biblically. And we need to make sure that we're in the faith. The Bible tells us that. God, we thank you for your grace. That you you bring us to you in a myriad of ways. But the point is that you bring us to you. And Lord, we, we thank you that even here today, if there's someone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, it's not rocket science. You don't need more information. You don't need to understand more about God. You need to give it up. You need to surrender. You need to yield your heart to Christ. Acknowledge your brokenness, your sinfulness. Put your pride under your foot and stomp on it and say, you know what? God, I need your help. He'll hear that prayer. Be merciful to me, a sinner. He'll save you gloriously. He'll open your eyes so that you can see the spiritual truth before you. Father, we thank you. We pray that you would just bless our day today. Father, help us to leave this place, these four walls, with the message of hope and grace that we find in Christ Jesus and share it with those around us, not only through our lips, but also through our lives. And Lord, we, we long for that day when you return. Father, the world seems to just be falling apart all around us. And it can be nerve-wracking at times, but Lord, we know that your sovereign hand is overseeing everything. And Father, you are totally carrying out your perfect plan. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would continue to strengthen our faith in you. We ask that not only for ourselves, Lord, but for our kids. We think of the future that they may have here, even in this country, and it looks bleak. And Lord, we pray that you would would renew our trust in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.
Amen.